0: Welcome to the first episode of Spy Talk, the latest podcast from the DSR Network, producers of Deep State Radio. Spy Talk is hosted by Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Spy Talk lives at the intersection of intelligence operations, foreign policy, homeland security, and military strategy. Spy Talk is available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and consider providing a review. Thank you.
1: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy,
2: national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve.
3: Hi there, this is Jeff Stein, and welcome to the inaugural edition of Spy Talk. We're going to talk about all sorts of things in the espionage world foreign policy, national security, military operations involving the CIA, NSA, etc., etc. My co host is Gene Meserve the legendary pioneering homeland security correspondent for CNN.
2: And Jeff, of course, is the man who created Spy Talk at Congressional Quarterly. He took that on to the Washington Post and Newsweek, and Spy Talk still exists on Substack. He and an amazing cadre of reporters are filing there all the time. Read it. Subscribe.
3: Thanks very much, Gene. This week, we're going to talk to Joby Warwick, A Washington Post reporter who has an incredible spy story involving Syria.
1: Syria alone of all the countries that we worry about in that part of the Middle East had a real weapon of mass destruction. It had a chemical arsenal. And it was not a small, it was big and it was powerful It had all the bad stuff. And so we were very anxious to understand that program. The other neighbors certainly were too. And we ended up recruiting somebody
2: who was on the inside to help us. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about cyber and more. You may recall that this week, President Biden said, I've had enough. And he was talking about SolarWinds, which is the massive hack, which affected at least nine government agencies and tens of thousands of other organizations. It's been attributed to Russia. He also spoke to Russia about their interference in U.S. elections in 2016 and 2020.
3: Because elections are sacred. They're sovereign undertakings and are expression of the will of the American people. We cannot allow foreign power to interfere in our democratic process with impunity.
2: Jeff, President Biden didn't just talk about these things. He imposed sanctions on 32 Russian companies and individuals, and he kicked out 10 Russian diplomats. First, when we talk about diplomats, are we really talking about spies?
3: That's right, diplomats is in quotes, intelligence services use diplomatic cover to put spies in the embassy so that if they're caught spying, they can only be kicked out, they won't, won't be put in jail. Of course, the Russians operate what are called illegals who are under non-diplomatic cover, working as uh, real estate agents or um, salesmen or or consultants. Uh, those people, when they're caught, can be put in jail. In fact, we did arrest 10 of them back in 2011 and put them in jail for a while eventually ended up swapping them out. But um, these expulsions are usually the result of something really going over the top. And in this case, it's Russian interference in our elections in 2016 and in 2020. And they're continuing to fan the flames of, say, anti-vaccination sentiment, trying to create chaos in our American politics. And they're doing a pretty good job of it. So this goes on and on, decade after
2: decade. So they've kicked out American diplomats. In the end, when you look at it all, who gets hurt more? Is it the U.S. or is it Russia?
3: I think the general consensus in the intelligence community is that we get hurt a lot more. Uh, It's a lot harder to spy in Russia than it is for Russia to spy in the United States, or for that matter, the Chinese, North Koreans, Iranians, and so on, um, because we're an open, free society. And uh, Russia is a police state. So when we get kicked out, it's much harder for us to get reestablished and keep our spying operations going to defend this country.
2: Do these expulsions actually make a difference? They're supposed to be punitive, but did they change policy? Do they have effect?
3: It's kind of a slapping match. You know, we slap them and then they slap us. Um, it doesn't really change the fundamental relationship between ourselves in Russia, we actually find places to cooperate on, for example, on terrorism and climate issues. So the relationship will go on. The Biden administration is actually pretty interested in reestablishing some sort of normalcy. So this is a spat that's going to be forgotten about pretty quickly. Uh, and we'll move on with our diplomatic relations with Russia.
2: Jeff, thanks. And you can read that article and many more on Substack. Look for Spy Talk. SolarWinds wasn't the only recent hack. There was another huge hack uh, of Microsoft servers that has been attributed to China. I talked about both of these with Admiral Mike Rogers. He's the former head of the NSA, National Security Agency, and also Cyber Command. He headed those from 2014 to 2018. Are we just outmatched in cyberspace? So I wouldn't say outmatched. Uh, I think there's a couple of fundamentals here. Number one,
0: as an individual who spent, you know, several decades serving the nation and admittedly, both penetrated networks and defended networks, the, the advantage is always on the um, in the current structure. I would argue the advantage is inherently in the attacker. The attacker chooses the time and place. The, the attacker doesn't have some of those constraints, if you will, that particularly companies operating within a legal framework and a democracy. Um, and so I, I you know, I think we have to acknowledge as we're looking ahead, look, we are not those authoritarian states, Russia and China. We do not want to become like they are. So we have to acknowledge we are going to work with some self-imposed constraints. Some of them make perfect sense. Some of them, I think we ought to step back and reassess if they still make sense. Um, One of those, and I'm, I'm sure it'll come up later, you know, because you're here to talk about it now, for example, what should the relationship be with intelligence or government organizations in terms of monitoring of you know commercial domestic networks? A, you know, is that a part of making sure we don't have solar winds and the Microsoft Exchange kind of activity we so, so I just think we have to acknowledge there are some constraints. Some of those we put on ourselves for very good reason. Others I think we need to look at, but the answer is not to try to become like, like the, some okay. of our adversaries or the criminals.
2: But does our democracy put us at a disadvantage?
0: It, it certainly, I don't know if I would use the word disadvantage. What I would say is it forces us to reassess some of the assumptions we have historically made. And I would argue, we have not done a good a job there as we need to. We tended to consistently default to, hey, the government's going to do this, the private sector is going to do that, for example. And I'm thinking, The the lines are not that clean. The reality is you're watching our adversaries take advantage of that. They know, for example, that under our legal constructs and under the social constructs that we have created over time, we as a society, for example, have said, look, we don't want intelligence organizations and private networks. There's a reason why the Russians, for example, they went to using domestic U.S. infrastructure for much of this activity. Why? Because they knew it wasn't monitored in the same way that foreign infrastructure is. Why? Because legally, can't do it.
2: We're going to dig a lot deeper on those questions. But first, I want to learn more about you. When you started in the Navy, was cyber even considered a warfighting domain?
0: No, I mean, it was never even talked about. And plus, I didn't even start in cyber. I mean, I joined the Navy. I joined the Ronald Reagan Navy in 1981, expanding to 600 ships. It was a growth industry. And I was a ship driver. I was a surface warfare officer. I spent my time on destroyers my first five years. I then transitioned into a very specialized field of intelligence, signals intelligence, which is really what NSA is about. You know, I transferred into intelligence and in that particular discipline. And then, interestingly, that discipline started really evolving into an inherent and deep understanding of networks and cyber. And so, suddenly by around 2000, I found myself, I'm a captain at the time starting to really focus on cyber and how we're going to operate in this domain. And then at the same time, the Department of Defense bo- more broadly is saying to themselves, "Or we're not positioned for this. We've got to create structures, organizations, war fighting concepts. Thus is ultimately born U.S. Cyber Command. For
2: Excuse the uh, naval pun, but you really were the first wave of cyber experts.
0: Yeah, in, in some, I was as I tell people, look, I was very lucky. I, I was at a time when my skill set was valued more over time. On a personal basis, for example, prior to me, and it's less a reflection of me and more just the timing in my background, there had never been an individual in the history of the United States Navy in my background, signals intelligence and cryptology, that had ever made three-star, that had ever been a numbered fleet commander, that had ever been a four-star, that had ever been a combatant commander. And yet suddenly I find myself, now I'm you know four-star Admiral Rogers, run an NSA and running cyber command. And again, it just was timing. As I tell my own children, your father was so lucky. Timing is everything.
2: And well, I'd I'm sure ability, had, ability probably oh, had I something didn't. to do with it too. I'm wondering if there was a moment along the way when you were in signals intelligence and it was becoming more evident that cyber was important, if there was an incident, an event that really woke you up or woke the Navy up to the importance of this area.
0: I, in my experience, it was less a single event and more a sense that the world around us is really changing. And we have got, which I, I give the department great credit for. I thought it did not wait until things were truly bad to decide, perhaps we need to do something different. I thought the department had done a good job, not perfect, but done, had done a good job starting in the late 90s and then really taking off early 2000s, the 2010 timeframe, when they ultimately made the decision let's create cyber command, to step back and say, look, we've got a new operational domain. We've got a new problem set here. How do we go about ensuring that our nation and the department has capability, has men and women with the right back? How do we create a workforce? How do we create warfighting organization? What command and control structure should we use? I'll give the department credit. but There were just a lot of great people from leaders who didn't necessarily understand a lot about it, but said, I may not know much, but I know it's important to a handful of people who, when you look back, they had a high level of knowledge, they had an idea, and boy, it all just really came together. for
2: And we still have a lot of people in leadership in various parts of government who are in the same predicament. They know it's important, but they don't know much about it. Before we get to that discussion, though, um, a lot of people fret about the possibility of a cyber Pearl Harbor. Um, Is that what keeps you up? No, I now personally, no disrespect
0: to including a Secretary of Defense who used to use that My comment would be, I never liked the Pearl Harbor analogy because my view was Pearl Harbor was a bolt out of the blue that totally surprised us. My view is given the activity we've seen for the last 20 years, there's no excuse for a bolt out of the blue that totally surprises us guys. So I like less the analogy of Pearl Harbor and more the idea, so what are we doing to make sure we're trying to anticipate? Even as we acknowledge, you're not gonna have perfect knowledge. You know, cyber is no different than any, anything else I ever did in the military. I, I wished I could tell people, well, we always had perfect knowledge. and knew exactly what the adversary was going to do. That's just not the norm. It, it happens sometimes, but it's not the norm. And you certainly can't build strategies around the idea. I'm going to have perfect knowledge of the world. around me. So <laughs> it comes down to we don't know what we don't know. In some ways. So, boy, one thing you learn in the DOD. So in the face of uncertainty, what do you do? take courses of action that give you maximum flexibility, and enable you to pivot quickly. And then the second thing is, and try to plan and anticipate so you've got at least some departure point. you got something you can deviate from.
2: So I would gather we haven't done that altogether successfully because we keep getting hit with massive cyber attacks.
0: Well, I, I, I think it's less we haven't anticipated what the adversary is going to do and more we have not been able to change actors risk calculus. We have not been able to convince actors, look, maybe you can do this, but it's not in your best interest and you don't want to do it. Um, And therefore you get them to say to themselves, you know, I'm not going to do a major uh, supply chain event like so many.
2: Do you suggest there's anything we could do that would give them that realization?
0: Oh yeah. I, I think it's one area where I would give the solarium commission, for example, high marks. They talked about, hey, there's three elements to this. You know we need to set the conditions create norms if you will we need number one number two we need to make their life harder look we got to increase our defensive capability better design in our networks better written software um and then thirdly look we have also got to think about cyber more broadly because we can apply pressures not just in cyber but in other areas we can put a cost on this if you will to other nations. We got to bring all three of those together and that's where What what we the really cost to...
2: the cost questions the one I'm curious about. We've tried sanctions, we've tried public shaming. None of it seems to have worked. So, it it
0: clearly hasn't today. We have not fundamentally changed the risk calculus. So, it's one of the points that I try to make to people is look, so doing more of the same and expecting different outcomes probably doesn't have a high probability uh, of success here. I mean, the Russians You know they just flat out have decided look we'll we'll take the heat you can sanction us you can publicly castigate us all you want we're not going to change even the chinese i would argue you saw back in 2015 we kind of publicly outed them they throttled back a little bit but again they've, they've ramped back up again you know the north koreans look they're so isolated they've created their whole structure around the idea that they are relatively uh pain-proof. Now, that, that that's a simplistic, not totally accurate characterization, but there is no other nation in the world that has created a structure that is so designed to withstand pressure from the outside world. They, they just opted to totally isolate decades ago.
2: So maybe you have some letters with nation-states, but what about all the non-state actors that are operating in this realm too, and sometimes in cooperation with Native right. And and nation it's, states? Right.
0: It's interesting, to your point, You're starting to see a blurring of the lines. You've got some nation states approaching criminal groups. For example, you're seeing some criminal groups use use tools that we had previously seen nation states use. So the lines are blurring. And as much as we focus on nation states, the reality is for most of our citizens and most of our private sector, the the biggest day-to-day concern is not the nation state, it's the criminal actor. You saw in 2020, given COVID and our physical disbursement, ransomware for example has just exploded and not just within the private sector you're seeing municipalities major cities that are having to pay you know
2: ransoms now so it's it's a combination and hospitals of too. And other, right um so so given the fact that you're seeing this blending of the criminal and and the national does it make it even more difficult to cope with a threat
0: yeah there is no doubt the complexity of the challenge is only increasing. I mean, we got three trends that are working against us. The complexity of the challenge is increasing. The incentive of the actors to continue to do what they're doing is only growing. Why? Because it's working for them, whether you're a criminal and you're making more and more money out of the use of cyber to penetrate and ransomware and other things, or you're a nation state and you're using a supply chain attack like SolarWinds and you're having massive success across multiple elements of the government and the private sector. So they're more inclined. And then thirdly, because of COVID, we physically disperse, so our network structure is more vulnerable. You know the idea that we're all sitting at, at work, physically brought together behind a well-established perimeter, and that everything we do in cyber flows through a central kind of security structure. How does that work for you in your house or me in my house today? It, it just it doesn't work that way. So those three things coming together in many ways means that it, it's getting tougher, not easier.
2: So. Um- can you talk to us much about our offensive capabilities? You in your previous jobs were in charge of all that stuff. Right, so we have publicly acknowledged within the Department of Defense that we,
0: we have used cyber offensively against ISIS, for example, starting in 2016. We have publicly acknowledged, you've seen General Nakasone, uh, my successor, he has publicly testified that the Trump administration authorized the use of cyber offensive activities against the Russians and certain parts of their infrastructure and capabilities that we had seen used in the 2016 election. That was done in the 2018 and the 2020 election cycles to try to preclude the Russian ability, if you will, to use cyber as a tool the same way we had seen in 2016. So the department and the nation as a whole publicly acknowledged that we have offensive... Ca- the reality is almost every major nation around the world today is trying to develop
2: offensive capabilities. And although there are not norms of behavior, are there norms of behavior? I mean, well, are there certain boundaries that more or less players not,
0: respect? I would argue there are some, but not where we need to be. It's interesting to me, look, even in the middle of showing my age, even in the middle of the cold war, in the height of this confrontation between the Soviets and the West, when it was an ideological structure in which the one side communism was arguing, the ultimate end state for us is the overthrow of democracy and capitalism even within those stakes, we had developed a pattern over 45 years where we kind of each knew, okay, you can go this far, but but no further. And so we were able, we had aperiodic spikes and crises, but broadly, we were able to preclude this day-to-day tussle that we were having from going, from escalating. I would argue we haven't been able to do yet that yet in cyber. We just have not been able to create norms in part because collectively, I don't think that we, the US and I would argue others have come to any kind of agreement about what should be acceptable or not acceptable. For example, on the US side, we broadly historically have said, there's three categories of activity that we'll say right up front are totally unacceptable. So we said the penetrations of systems for the extraction of intellectual property and the providing of that intellectual property then to other companies for competitive advantage. This, you, you see this with China really more than anybody else, totally unacceptable. We also said the penetration of systems for the purposes of criminal activity, ransomware, et cetera, uh, degrading or defacing, totally unacceptable. Lastly, we have always said the penetration of systems associated with the health and well-being of our citizens and our economy, Think about the power grid, think about the water supply, think about the financial sector. We have always said those were unacceptable.
2: But on the all other three hand, of
0: those things are happening. Right. On the other hand, and this is where solar winds is really interesting to me, we have never said that the use of cyber as a tool of espionage to penetrate government systems for the purposes of extracting information of a national security value. We, nor literally any other nation in the world, have said that's unacceptable. Why? because we all engage in it. Um, And so part of the challenge facing the Biden team is, so how do we define solar winds in terms of setting a precedence for what's acceptable, what's not acceptable? Because remember, whatever we do, we're gonna set a precedence here. And we wanna make sure it's a precedence that we can live with, even as we acknowledge there are activities that we and our friends and allies engage in, that we wanna make sure we don't necessarily preclude our ability to do that because we think they provide benefit to our nation They address national security changes, national security challenges, and they give us insights that we think are important for our security.
2: Let's talk about the defense side. Sure. First of all, is the government properly organized to defend?
0: Yeah. So the initial approach that broadly, we came up with a construct over the course of the last 20 years that's fundamentally built around the idea that we're going to create various organizations with cyber expertise within the government, and then they're gonna collaborate together. The four largest being the Department of Homeland Security and CISA, which has the overall lead responsibility, if you will, for the federal government and the provision of cyber expertise and insight to support the private sector, as well as defense across the government as a whole. So DHS and CISA. The, The second, DOD. DOD had two components to it really, Cyber Command and the National Security Agency, and then the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We, we created cyber capacity focused on law enforcement, the ability to address this from a criminal perspective.
2: Does and it then work? We basic. I'm sorry. Does it work?
0: So when it's all said and done, I think the takeaway is a collaboration-focused model is not delivering the outcome we need. I think the future is much more about integration. What do I mean by that? Look. When you're focused on collaboration, you're guessing at what the other entity might, might need or might value. When you're actually working side by side 24-7, it is amazing how you're able to spread information much more rapidly. So I would argue within the government, we need much more integration of capability. The second thing I would argue in the government is CISA and the Department of Homeland Security are filled with incredibly motivated men and women who are working incredibly hard. But we have given them a task that is totally mismatched with the resources they have, with their capacity, and their capability. DHS cannot deliver what we have told them we want. And It's not because they're bad people. Um, so the second point I would make is I think part of the challenge going forward is we have got to take better, make better, even as we acknowledge we need to make long-term investments, additional investments in DHS and CISA, That's gonna take some number of years to come to fruition. So guys, what can we do right now? There's two things that I think we could do right now. Number one, we gotta integrate FBI, NSA, Cyber Command, DHS. Why aren't we working more in integrated teams together 24 seven, looking at this problem set? Not each of us is doing our own thing. And then secondly, why would we wanna replicate the capability and the expertise that's resident in the private sector? Look who detected solar winds. It wasn't DHS, it wasn't DOD, it wasn't the FBI. It was a private cybersecurity firm, FireEye. And so a lot of times I'll think to myself, so why do we want to try to replicate the billions of dollars of investment and expertise that reside in the private sector? Why aren't we bringing them into this integration?
2: Well, aren't there all kinds of constraints on that? Legal constraints, intellectual property concerns, reputational risk, all kinds of things. There's certainly
0: plenty of issues that we, need to be concerned about. So I'm not gonna argue it's simple, but I'll give you an example where I think we got a good model. If you look at at air travel, we decided as a nation that there was so much risk associated with the potential loss of hundreds of individuals from an airplane disaster. We said to ourselves, you know, we're gonna give the government a unique role. We're gonna come in, we're gonna investigate every major aviation event. We are not gonna accept a company that says, i got intellectual property concerns here i don't really want to share all this data i don't want to lose competitive advantage we don't accept a manufacturer that says that is a competitive manufacturing advantage for me i don't want anybody to know the specifics of what i'm doing in terms of fuel tank configuration etc nope guess what guys doesn't matter we say to the unions look we know you want to protect the rights and the privacy of your union members but that flight crew guess what we're going to have total access to their medical records, to their psychological history, to their training history, and why. We say to ourselves, we do this because we believe that the risk is so significant here that we need to make a slightly different approach. We bring all of that together. We tear down the specifics of an aviation incident. And then out of that, we, with a government-led team, I'm not arguing it's got to be government-led, but look at what we do then. We change training, we change maintenance, we change manufacturing. There's a reason why when you look at aviation, while we have aviation accidents, the trend has been you do not see the same accidents happening over and over and over again. Look at cyber. We have the same intrusions over and over and over again. Why? Because we treat everything as a one-off. I always thought, look, I want the pain of the one to lead to the advantage of the many. And yet because we don't talk about this, because we don't share these details, because we don't take this integrated approach to how we look at what happened, we lose so many benefits to me.
2: What do you say to people who are terrified at the thought of an intelligence industrial complex, who look at China and say, look at the surveillance cameras, the facial recognition, now you know, DNA information that's being used to repress part of the population. What do you say to the people who say, so, we don't want it
0: here? Right, I think it's a very valid concern. My comment would be, guess what's unique about us as opposed to them? We have over, We have independent oversight mechanisms and that's the key for us. In some cases, it's a court. Hey, look, if I don't like something and I don't believe in it, I can go to a court of law and get a law overthrown, get an action by the government overthrown. I think, and I'm not arguing courts of law are necessarily the answer, I'm just arguing, look, there are structures that we have put in place to address issues like this. And I think there's other structures that we can put in place. I think there's a way to execute oversight of whatever
2: kind of constructs that we come up with, which you want to do. We want our citizens to have confidence in what we're doing. Congress is one means of conducting oversight. But do members of Congress understand what they're dealing with? They certainly have some sense of the threat, I think. Right. But do they know enough about technology to provide effective oversight in this area? No, I, look, they have broad, as you've
0: said, you know, Gene, they got broad knowledge of the priority. They're not necessarily the deepest technical expertise. The other thing that's interesting... And that's I, an I,
2: understatement. Take, right,
0: take this from my time in intelligence. We built oversight mechanisms following the intelligence abuses of the 1960s and the 1970s that were predicated on two major principles. We'll create an independent court, the FISA court, and we'll create congressional oversight committees. Fast forward now, we did that in the late 19, in the 78, 1980 timeframe, fast forward 30 years. We, We have a significant, we have a series of events and people start saying to themselves, I don't believe in this court. What the hell? The court only hears this FISA court? Only the government is a party in the court. You don't even get an opposing viewpoint, you know, argue. Why should I trust a judge that's only hearing one story? Congressional oversight. Why do I believe in Congress? Why should I trust Congress? So to your point, as we're thinking about oversight, we have to do it in a way using mechanisms that that generate confidence. And institutions right now don't generate a lot of confidence.
2: International investigators have said that Syrian President Bashir al-Assad has used chemical weapons perhaps hundreds of times, including one strike of a Damascus suburb in 2013.
1: Activists have accused Assad in what would, if confirmed, be by far the worst reported use of poison gas in the two-year civil war. Reports on how many people have died ranges from hundreds
2: to thousands.
3: Our next guest is Joby Warwick, who's been an astounding investigative reporter for over 20 years at the Washington Post. He's won two Pulitzer's. One for Triple Agent, his nonfiction book about how Al Qaeda infiltrated the CIA with horrendous results. He's got a new book out now called Red Line The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World. At the heart of this book is an astounding spy story on how the CIA recruited the head of Syria's chemical weapons program and ran him as a spy for several years. He's here to talk about it with us today.
1: So this is an incredibly well-kept secret. We'll start with that, because this was probably the most successful penetration of Syria. You know, putting aside some things that Israelis may or may not be doing, but for the Americans, this this was their top spy for a number of years. And it happened so far below that the radar screen that after the operation went away, Nobody still knew about it for, for years, uh, years that followed. But essentially what you had was Syria alone of all the countries of the, that we worry about in that part of the, the Middle East had a real weapon of mass destruction. It had a chemical arsenal and it was not a small, it was big and it was powerful and had all the bad stuff. And so we were very anxious to understand that program. The other neighbors certainly were too. And we ended up recruiting somebody who was on the inside to help us. And that recruit was amazingly well-placed. He was a top scientist who happened to be developing sarin, a nerve agent. And he was also, you know, uh, someone who had lived in the United States. He had been to America as a student. He loved America he loved Americans. And so in a way, this was a fairly easy uh, recruit for, for the CIA and he ended up working for us for more than 14 years.
3: Now he sort of came to the CIA, right? He dropped a note on somebody reached out to the US and and then when the CIA guy showed up, who was a young guy in his 20s, as you describe him, uh, this guy said, I've been waiting for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he had actually put out the, the breadcrumb first uh, because of his, his background, because he, he he had a secret that he knew was valuable. And so, yeah, he, he was at a, a foreign meeting and this is related to me by officers who were working in this case at the time and and said, yeah, I'm I'm ready to meet with somebody some time passes. It took, you know, as, as commonly happens, the CIA doesn't always jump at, uh, you know, it, you know over the transom stuff, but because this is a known person, they, they followed up, had a an officer meet him at his university where he was teaching a class. They made their first little exchange. And uh, and yeah, the, the, uh, the spy to be was somewhat eager to get into the game.
3: Now, there were some people at CIA who were worried that he might be playing us, right? That he might yeah. be a double agent. That's and always how did-
1: yeah. And, and so the, there is obviously the, the betting that goes on always with these cases, but part of what uh, was was great about this particular spy is so much of what he could do could be checked and, and vetted against other information, including what was the remarkable thing is, you know, show us show us the money, the CIA said, show us your goods. And so a plan was cooked up for him to, to come up with some of the sarin he had made, deliver it to a CIA handler and let the CIA look at it and see what it was. So it was, you know, this exchange took place in the front seat of a car in Damascus. It gets spirited across uh, the border it put on, a, on an airplane and sent back to the United States and analyzed. And lo and behold, yeah, the, the Syrians actually had some good stuff. It was high quality binary sarin, which means you can, it's, it's two separate compounds that are stable that can be mixed at the last minute. So it doesn't decay over time. And the Syrians had made it almost on their own. They did a pretty good job of it. <laughs>
3: Now, it's generally thought within intelligence circles, somewhat cynically, that a lot of these spy versus spy games add up to nothing. With notable exceptions like Pankowski, the Soviet uh, who gave us the secrets of the uh, the Soviets' move of missiles into Cuba, that. Um, uh, the the information remains secret, the intelligence remains secret, it's not really put to use. So in this operation, how did the CIA put to use this inform- extraordinary information of, of Syria's chemical weapons program? What did they do with it?
1: Yeah, well, for the longest time, it's, it's just our way of tracking a, a potentially dangerous WD program, a destabilizing program. On the other hand, this was a a stable front in the Middle East. The Syrians and the Israelis had been, you know, essentially not at war for a very long time. The Syrians didn't seem to be interested in taking on any of its neighbors, so it was kind of a static program. We kind of knew what they had. It wasn't considered much of a match, certainly for what the Israelis could do to them, so it was just their little deterrent, and, and so we knew it, and that was just information we had. When it became important was years later when Arab Spring breaks out, all of a sudden there's this Scare that goes through the agency and through the Pentagon, both here's a weapon of mass destruction in a country at civil war, a country that's literally being torn apart Mm -hmm. with by 2012 some really bad actors coming in, you've got Al-Nusra Front, which is an Al-Qaeda organization, later comes ISIS, all of these organizations within striking distance of these depots and bunkers where the stuff is stored, and so this is a a hair on fire alarm that uh, we, we really need to get this stuff out. Thanks to the spy, all these years later, we had a really good sense of what they had. As a number of officers, former officers, army people would tell me, we had exquisite intelligence about Syria's program. And this is why. We knew how much they had roughly, where it had been kept. Our information was slightly out of date and, and things had moved around after the Civil War started. But we had a pretty good sense of what the Syrians had been up to. You no,
3: know, it's that's great, uh, Jody. It's such a great story. Now, the U.S. and... In- Israel have been able to cripple Iran's nuclear program to some degree from time to time, including recently. Um, What action was taken against the Syrian chemical weapons program? Did we try to mount some sort of covert program to wipe out these stocks or uh, cripple the chemical weapons program?
1: after the war started, that that becomes a, an open question. You know, do we do this? I mean, if, if that's our big concern, if there is a real prol- proliferation risk that we're worried about, maybe we go after that that program in some way. Do you drop a bomb on, on a facility? And, and the answer to that turns out to be, no, you don't. Because if you strike a chemical weapons depot, there's a real risk that that stuff will spread. And instead mm-hmm. of, you know, destroying the chemical, you end up, creating a a poison gas plume that drifts into neighborhoods and kills women and children. Mm -hmm. And as one of the characters in the book tells me, this could be the kind of the thing that haunts America for a hundred years is that we were the ones that released a chemical weapon. Mm -hmm. So that was off the table. And interestingly, consistently through Obama and through Trump, nobody seriously talked about, you know, eliminating these weapons directly with a missile strike. So there had to be another, another way and how you get weapons out of a country at war that's a challenge, and and you don't, uh, you know, if you could send in the 101st Airborne, but the studies that we had done of this problem show that you would need tens of thousands of soldiers hmm. to secure all these bases, to make sure that they weren't intruded upon, to make your lines of, you know, your 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 traffic lines, and your transportation lines open. It would take a huge investment of of manpower, and that just seemed unlikely to happen. So the only real recourse was if somehow. Assad would give them up. The Syrians would just say, "Okay, you know, come in and get them." That could happen with a deal, or it could happen if the if the rebels won. If some rebel group was able to overthrow the government and they were good guys and they opened up their coffers and said, "You know, come and come and take a look and take out what you what you want." I mean, that was that was a serious scenario too. That they, that there might be a peaceful exchange at some point.
3: Wow, what an extraordinary story. I think a lot of people would be interested to know how you get such a story. How does a reporter penetrate uh, the wall of secrecy uh, that the CIA surrounds itself with? Uh, how, unravel the mystery there for us.
1: <laughs> well, the one thing about this story for me, because you know, as you mentioned, my background includes weapon of mass destruction, terrorism, in the Middle East. Here was a, a one story where all of my issues kind of come together and because of that i was interested from the very first days of the syrian uprising about this this syrian stem chemical stockpile and what people are going to do about it and in my early travels i can remember late 2011 early 2012 going to the neighbors the regional countries talking to their security people who i had relationships and that's part of as you know part of the the privilege of this job as you go places and you talk to people and over a while they, they trust you or they don't mm-hmm. and the thing that they kept bringing up over and over again was we have to do something about these chemical weapons so i tracked this and i kind of get, I built a file um i started working on this book in a way before my last book uh, was was even started which was black flag flags which came out in 2015 because i, I just was just curious to know how this was going to end and, you know, the, the thing is when you work in this area and you, you meet people, you, you meet the people on the ground who do things. And when they're able to talk, they're the ones with the interesting stories to tell. The ones that were actually on the ground, you know, looking inside bunkers. The ones that were on this ship that shows up later in the story that has to destroy this arsenal at sea. The guys who did that, the people who ran the mission, just remarkable people. And, and the stories they tell are Some of the, the best stories of the book, and that's just really why I enjoyed the reporting of it.
3: As you know, there is a not insignificant number of people who think we shouldn't be telling these secret stories. Hmm. Um, I assume, as someone who works in the same territory, that there were people who wanted the story out and were given permission from their old employer at the CIA or in the Pentagon to tell the story that CIA and other Defense Department people wanted the story out. They couldn't, in many cases, um, take credit for putting it out, but they wanted the story out. You weren't stealing secrets yourself that could damage the United States.
1: That's a, that's a good question. because I, you know, I do sometimes wonder about uh, whether there are conversations that take place that I know nothing about. I'm sure they do. But in, in this case, you know, and in every case really, we do think carefully about um, the sharing of secrets or this, the revealing of secrets when there are risks involved, and if there is a potential of a operation being compromised and people being killed. Particularly, that's something that gives us pause, and, and we end up having, as you know, many, you know, deep dark conversations with uh, with agency people to, to 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 explain what we want to do and to see if. To make sure that we're not uh, putting people's lives at risk mm-hmm. the great thing about the, the the chemist story the spy that we were discussing uh this was an operation that had ended long ago uh the syrians knew about it because they rolled up the the spy uh and that's described in some detail in the book how he's compromised and what happens to him and it's it's not it doesn't end well for him we should say but um because he is already dead and because the syrians knew all about what he had done there didn't seem to be any any serious problems with telling the story so many years later and Mm -hmm. i i do feel that in a way it's it's helpful and the guys who worked this case uh i think they certainly appreciated the fact that that the work they did and the risk they took back in the 80s in some cases uh fruit and was was actually very much Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. so they're so to tie that knot uh, the bottom line is that the CIA doesn't mind having a story out like this, at the very least, and might actually encourage you to write it because uh, it kind of makes them look good. It shows that they can conduct a very sensitive operation behind the lines, as it were, in a denied territory like Syria. Am I right about that or no?
1: It, it probably is is very much the case. I do think that they're sensitive to uh, to the way they're portrayed um, and you see that often with the, the films that come out. Some films come out clearly with uh, with you know some kind of at least tacit approval from the agency because they're on scene taking photographs or interviewing mm-hmm. former officers and so yeah when there's a good news story to be told, I think they're they're getting a, more savvy at, at recognizing that and helping out like, like zero
3: dark dirty exactly clearly the cia's version of events
1: yes but you do have to to be that's for a journalist that's a potential hazard uh first of all i've, I've never been told by the agency we want you to tell this story we're glad you're telling it they, they they've never been um right they they're never
3: going to say that
1: yeah they're never they'll say that but they um but if they are interested in, in you having the information and that you have to think about that too because that means that mm-hmm. they've got their own spin they want to put on this and sure is story or is it Is it something that's sort of an official version? So that's Mm. where triangulating is important, talking to a wide range of sources, including people in other countries who have a completely different perspective on things. Mm -hmm.
3: So to tell listeners another chapter of this kind of reporting, we actually, those of us who report on intelligence activities, we actually talk quite frequently to the public affairs department of CIA. And some people would say, well, that's pretty ironic that a secret agency would have a public affairs office. But in fact, We do question them a lot, have a lot of interaction with them, a lot of negotiating with them over what we can say and what we can't. They're always going to make their best case for not reporting anything or only something or reporting it the way they would like it. But in fact, they have public affairs officers who interact with the press.
1: Yeah. And you might think, as you said, it might be the kind of easiest job in the world is to be a a PAO guy at the the CIA where you really don't have to ever say anything. But it's actually not true. They do... um, they they have a tough job because they their their business is secrets and sometimes often um, you know journalists will come to them with uh, with stories that, that are problematic sometimes they're accurate sometimes they're ninety percent accurate um, and so the ne- negotiation sometimes uh, involves well you know a, a steering you know we we we, we you know we're not going to tell you this story is wrong but we would suggest that you, you check certain facts. And that's helpful. I mean, if an mm-hmm. agency says, well, we we'll think you're just off base on something, mm-hmm. typically they're right. And, and if they don't comment at all, then sometimes you're sort of in, a, in yeah. a black hole where you don't really know what to do. But it's good sometimes to have the, at least that little bit of feedback that says, yes, you know, we we're not, we're not going to steer you away. Or if you do this and you report X fact or X fact, then you're going to be wrong and you're going to embarrass yourself. And you want to hear that before a story comes out. And that's at least I do.
3: That's right. Um, now, recently, uh, the director of national intelligence sent out uh, a warning notice saying uh, a warning against former the formers, as they're called the ex CIA officials uh, warning them not to talk to the press. Or, Shut up,
2: yeah.
3: because as as you and I know, we often consult former CIA and other intelligence officials to get a story or to lay out a story for us, give us details. Um, is this part of the deep state that the right wing is always warning us about?
1: Well, you sure hate to see um, notices like that go out because Lord knows, and you certainly know that uh, that often good stories start with people who used to be on the inside and still hear things. And so they're often you know, the, 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 the initial tip or a confirming source. And because they, they're not subject to polygraphs anymore for the most part, then they're a little bit more free to talk about things mm-hmm. within the, the law. I mean, they, they, they still have their classification rules they're sworn to uphold, And if they break one of those then they do it at their own peril. But all that aside, I mean, if it weren't for that, I mean, the, the rest of the, you know, the people who are actively working in the agency, there's this little thing called polygraphs and, mm-hmm. and they continuously have to get their security clearances renewed and they're asked about contacts with journalists. And so, you know, just a uh, uh, you know innocent conversation can be extremely problematic for somebody who's still within the agency. So, so our ability to get people get information for people lower in the ranks uh, at the agency is is extremely hard, and that's that's why those those formers are are super valuable to us. And and I, I hope they're not dissuaded by uh, by these kinds of memos.
3: Yeah, we should also uh, tell people that uh, they should not be under the impression that we uh just get a tip from some former person and run to the press and print it that we we uh uh pursue the same standards uh as we would with any source that exactly. we, we we ver we have to go out and get verification for anything they tell us
1: yeah i think people have such a skewed understanding of how reporters work particularly our work where it's we do have to use anonymous sources there's just not a way around it and so and people assume that anonymous sources is just like some random tip that comes in that we run with and that's never the case ever the case and we always know who we're dealing with and we we don't ever run a story based on a single source that just becomes the starting point and usually it does involve going to that public affairs officer and saying look we've, we've got this story we think we have it right we're going to re- publish it on wednesday and um, would you like to comment, or do you have any any um, suggestions or, or 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 remarks about it? And and that's just our process, and it's not easy. I mean, it's it's you know by comparison, I think you know a lot of like either the guys who do political work. That's God bless them. They're they're good at their jobs, but you have people that are much more eager to share information, and and it's easy to get multiple people to comment on something. For intelligence stories and national security in general, it's it's a, it can be grueling just to find a second source who knows something or, or, you know, it it just, it just can take sometimes days or weeks just to just Mm -hmm. to go a couple inches Mm -hmm. getting further along on a story, uh, you know, investigation than you were.
3: Yeah. And you have to take extraordinary uh, security measures yourself. I remember when I joined the post in 2010, I had an orientation with other new reporters uh, on, uh, from the counsel's office at the Washington Post the Lawyers who said, uh, there's no law protecting you from the feds if they want to get your secrets, your notebooks, uh, your telephone records, and so on. There's no defense against national security uh, uh, violations. Uh, and he advised uh, go back to uh, garages, park benches, uh, meet your deep throats in secret places to protect yourself, you find yourself doing any of that lately?
1: That plus uh, getting every encrypted app that you can think of. My my phone is just filled with all these apps. They're supposed to be, you know, uh, you know encrypted and and it can't be penetrated. And and yet nobody completely believes that. Um, everybody assumes that at some level, people can access your 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 phone and your and your encrypted mail. And so yeah, if you if if you're smart, you never put anything in writing. Um, I have colleagues that are big fans of burner phones and, 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 you know, up until pandemic time in-person meetings were just, just the currency of the realm after COVID happened, it's much harder to, to get a source to meet you in that garage. So you have to come up with other ways. That's so I'm, right. I'm really glad that we're we seem to be heading back to normal and maybe normal reporting again.
3: Yeah. Uh, before we leave the, uh, the, uh, previous era. So I can assume that since you've been reporting on the CIA for some 25 years, that if you discovered there was a deep state trying to overthrow the government, you'd be the first to report it.
1: You know, it's, it seems, it seems crazy to us when people talk about these deep state ideas, but it's only really because we have a familiarity and people on the outside just kind of imagine what's going on in this crazy place called Washington, which is a crazy place. What you find out when you cover an agency like the CIA is that it's made up of very normal people who have all kinds of political beliefs. There's certainly a lot of of conservative people. There's some liberal people, too, and folks who are in the middle. They've got houses and kids and dogs, and and they're just normal folks. And in some cases, they are literally our neighbors. And so when you get a, a sense of what these people are like, you have an appreciation, A, for the jobs they do. And secondly, realize how hard it would be to pull off something like a deep state because they would get like two, you know, a day into it, and somebody would be ratting them out to to Fox News or to the Post or someone because it's just it's just not possible. These are not monolithic agencies; they're made up of humans with very different points of view, and they're mm-hmm. quite argumentative for yeah. Reason.
3: And and in my experience, and I'm sure it's yours. Um, These people are deeply patriotic too not flag waving patriotic, although some are not pound your chest patriotic, but they care deeply about this country, or they wouldn't have done this work for a long time. And they want to protect this country. And even when they're telling us things that the CIA screwed up on, their motivation is to stop the CIA from making a mistake again, and to do a better
1: job, right? That's exactly right, because people don't get into this for the money. It's not glamorous, and people might think it is, but it, in reality, it's, it's, it's a lot of thankless work, and, and, and maybe your, your greatest achievement in your career will never be known. Nobody will ever talk about it mm-hmm. because it's a secret. So they do it out of love of country, and you're right to say that it's not a kind of idealistic, you know, naive love of country. It's, it's, a, it's an understanding of what it takes to keep the country safe, an understanding who, of who our adversaries are and what they're trying to do against us. And they do see you know, wrongdoing by our country, by our officials, and sometimes they feel a moral c- calling to, to talk about it. And that's when hopefully we can be of, of help too, because our job is to shine a spotlight and, and to try to keep our government honest.
3: Exactly right. So thanks for all your insights, Joby Warwick. Um, what's next for you?
1: Um, back to the day job. And I'm uh, involved in uh and all kinds of things at the post right now, some big projects, and then just there's so much going on in the Middle East and in, in Iran, on Syria. So it's just, uh, I like to decompress a little bit and think about what the next big project is, but it's it's fun just to be in the daily scrape for a while.
3: Well, we'll look forward to being astonished by your next uh, volume of work. Thanks a lot for joining us on Spy Talk, Joby. Thanks a lot.
1: It's a pleasure, Jeff. See you again soon.
3: Bye-bye.
2: Jeff, that was great to listen to the two of you who have both covered intelligence for so long and so well, talking about how hard it is to extract these stories and verify these stories and make sure that in the process, you're not somehow being used by the U.S. government.
3: Yeah, spy stories are always tricky. Joby tells them so well. Uh, He's really a pro. Um, We hope to have more stories like that for you on Spy Talk in the coming weeks, as well as our coverage of the intersection of espionage, national security, homeland security, hacking, and so on and so forth. I hope you come back and listen to
2: us again. And meantime, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. We'll see you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to
1: spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy.
2: If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.